1: Hey friends, welcome to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm Erica and I'm so glad you're listening today. Today, I'm chatting with my longtime friend, S.E. Cup. You may know her from her CNN show, S.E. Cup Unfiltered, and many TV appearances across the networks over the last decade. She's one of my favorite people in this crazy political industry because she's always fair-minded, authentic, and focused on what really matters when it comes to the issues. In today's conversation, we get a peek into S.E.'s life, how she plans out the big show each week, and her thoughts on the current border crisis, the state of the GOP in the age Trump, as well as what she loves about being a mom and who her dream guest would be on the show. She's always a treat to talk with, and I know you're going to be entertained and interested in what Essie has to say today. Really quick, before we head into the chat, can you do me a big favor? If you've been listening to the show, will you pull out your phone right now and do a quick review on iTunes? I know, I was never a ratings and review person on anything before my book came out or getting into podcasts. But now I realize it's a simple, quick way to really support the show's books or products or people that you really enjoy and want to help. So if you're really loving the show, subscribing and leaving a rating and review is the best way to help more people see it. Let me know on social media if you do that. And I would love to thank you personally. Now on to the show. Okay, Se. thank you so much for spending some time with me today on the podcast. My pleasure. Yeah, so I wanted to start off by just saying thanks again for having me on your show last year uh, to talk about my book. It's been a whole year since it came out, and it was just great to be able to share that with your viewers.
0: It was a really, I think, special interview. You know, the show's political, and so it's... um, nice when we get to take a breath and talk about something more personal and spiritual. Um, I thought it was a really, really great moment. I'm so glad you came on.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, Now, a lot of people know you, obviously, through your show, Essie Cup Unfiltered, which is on CNN on Saturdays. And then before that, you were on HLN and then you've been on a million other shows commenta- commentating on all kinds of political issues. Plus, you've done lots of writing. But I think it would be really interesting to learn a little bit more about you behind the scenes. So I'm going to start with two questions. One, what are you doing today? And two, what is a day in the life of Essie Cup? <laughs> um,
0: today, I'm running some errands. Usually, I'd be at work on Thursdays because I do... um. a a weekly foreign affairs podcast called weekend warriors. And we tape that on Thursdays. So I would, I would normally be in the office, but our podcast is off. So I'm, I'm running some errands around my little, my little Connecticut town today. Um, nothing exciting or glamorous. Um, a a day in the life really changes day to day, which, uh, I love, I love this stage of, of my life. I'm in where. You know, I worked really, really hard for, you know, 15 years and I've got a pretty great schedule now. So as you said, my show is on Saturday. I usually go in Thursday and Friday to work on the show. And then I get Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays to work on my own projects and spend time with my kiddo and my family and travel. I was just in um, Boston last week speaking at a 50th anniversary, the Apollo 11 moon landing event, which was cool. so fun. Cause I'm a cool, I'm a space nerd, but, um, you know, getting <laughs> to do stuff like that now that I don't have a daily show when, when I had a daily show, I was really limited in what I could do and where I could go. And so now I've got a lot of flexibility to do other exciting work and it's, it's great.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about how your life changed when you transitioned because I can't imagine how much prep work it would take on a daily basis to, you know, be ready for the evening news, like to cover like current up to speed what's happening today. Um, So for the Saturday show, how did did that change in terms of how you were deciding what to cover and who to have on?
0: Yeah, I mean, it actually it's counterintuitive, but it's actually harder this way Um, when you're doing when you're doing a daily show. You don't have the luxury of like I'd really love to cover this or book this guest. You're really under a time crunch, so you'll book the guest that can come on that day, and you'll talk about whatever that you know the news of of that day is. And yes, it's it's um, you know t- time crunch and it's it's pressure, but you don't have creativity. That's sort of taken away from from you um, on on a weekly show especially a Saturday show, I mean, you've got so much you could do and you've got time to book guests. You've got time to think out segments. And so that can really create sort of, um, a paralysis of, of too many options and not really being able to narrow in on what, you know, this is the one thing we need to do this week. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's great. Sometimes like, um, you speaking about space? Just last week, I I got to have a a space scientist on the show to talk about Apollo Eleven and all the events happening around the anniversary. That's really cool. Um, but on the other hand, sometimes, you know, you, you, I have to remember I'm I'm a show for politics, and people want to come to hear about the the week in political news. And so, as much as fun as it is, and as much time as we have to prepare. We still have to stick to sort of a, a narrow set of parameters when when planning the show because you don't. I don't want to confuse people when they tune in and see. Well, now she's talking about space, or you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. I mean, you 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 do that a little, and finding a balance is key. But really, we have to be a political destination. So, um, there's you know pros and pros and cons to to both, but having a weekly show is a much different animal.
1: Is there anything that you? like prefer to cover or you know what kind of conversations do you like to have the most
0: if i if i could and my boss knows this because i've asked almost every year if i could i would i would have a show where i just talk about foreign policy i think mm-hmm. it's underreported it's undercovered it's underexplained even when we do foreign policy segments i find just as a viewer we don't really connect the dots often. Like why should me, why should me here in, you know, Connecticut or or New York, why should you, why should you care about what's happening over there? Why does it matter? And invariably in it does matter, but we don't we don't always connect those dots for viewers. And we just assume they'll understand the importance of you know uh chinese cybersecurity threats or uh, venezuelan protests or syrian genocide we'll just assume that they understand why it matters for us economically or for our national security or human rights um I, i i think it's really important to tie those stories to our own human interests our own social interests our own political interests um and i i you know i could do that all day there's just a limited, you know, there's a limited audience for that as my, my bosses yeah. are well aware. And so, you know, I understand wanting to give viewers what they want. And I also understand viewers caring more about what's happening in their backyards than what's happening, you know, abroad. But there's some really important stories going on right now. And, you know, it, it behooves all of us to invest in those stories, to know what's going on, to care, um, you know, it, that makes us all more informed and informed uh, about how we view our own politics and our own, um, cultures. So if they, yeah. if they let me, I'd do
1: it. But... So far. <laughs> well, you know. maybe in the future, Yeah, maybe in the future. Right. <laughs> um, well, I've seen your, um, your whiteboard photos where you're planning out the show on Instagram and, you know, you've got the big whiteboard there and you're writing down the topics and things. How many people are giving you input about what you're covering? Do you guys have like a, okay, we want to devote a percentage to this topic and a percentage to that topic. How do you balance out what you're covering?
0: Yeah, I, we have, um, you know, we have a weekly meeting with, um, with, uh, the I'm, you know, my, my boss, Jeff Zucker and, and all the other producers, they give their rundowns, what they're planning on doing. We give our rundown, what we're planning on doing a day before everybody gets feedback and sort of, you know, choose it over. But other than that moment, I really get to do whatever I want. Um, Like I said, I have, I have narrow parameters on my show. I'm supposed to do the intersection of politics and media. So I mostly do that. Um, but like I said, sometimes I can, I can diverge slightly to do something that I think is timely and relevant and of interest to me. I, you know, the, the trick to TV is if you're interested in it, then it's going to be interesting to other viewers. It's, it's when, mm-hmm. when, when we're told to do certain stories, you know, that we might not really be interested in, but we have to cover them. That 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 doesn't always work. So, you know, I'm interested in space. I want to have a space scientist on, I want to ask her what her favorite space (laughs) movie is, you know, I, I, and it actually, I mean, it works because I'm really into it and viewers can, can feel that and, 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 you know, get excited through, through my excitement. So, um, I, I, I don't get told what, what to, to cover really. Um, you know, we just sort of use our news sense, what's really popping. Yeah, I'm really, really, really lucky. You know, the Saturday night lineup on CNN is a really cool space for political conversation. There's me and then Van Jones has a show. David Axelrod has his interview show. And so, you know, the three of us kind of get left to do whatever we want. Um, You know, we're the only opinion hosts with shows. So it's sort of our little territory. And I I get a lot of... um, autonomy, you know, sometimes, sometimes there's something where, uh, you know, I'll be told you got to cover this tomorrow or, or, you know, today, um, because, you know, uh, there's, there's breaking news and, and that's fine to to be expected and we are a live show. So we have that flexibility. Um, but most of the time I get to, I get to say, and that goes to like the way we're going to cover something too. I mean, I'm obviously going to cover the debates as everyone else has been, we're going to do it in a different way. And I get to do it differently than, you know, some of the other shows, which is, which is also, um, really cool and you know, satisfying.
1: Which might be, um, how, how would you cover something? You don't have to say specifically since the debates are tonight, yeah. but, mm-hmm. um, how, what's an example of a way that you might cover something differently than another show?
0: Well, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm opinion and there's not a lot of opinion hosts on the network. Van and Axe are taped, taped shows. Mm, I'm okay. live. And so, you know, whereas a, another show on Dayside, the anchor will have people on to sort of argue, you know, two sides mm-hmm. of an issue. I, I don't have to do that. I can argue it myself. Um, <laughs> you know, I can start a show with my opinion. Here's what I think happened. And, you know, you know, you know how I feel right away. And then I can have people on to either, you know, um, fill fill that in, contextualize it, inform it, maybe disagree with it. Um But that's, you know, that's just one, one area, but, but I, I can do three blocks on a topic if I want. I don't have to leave something right away because I've got to get eight other news stories in, you know, I, I've got more of that flexibility because it is my, my show, my point of view. Uh, It's really lucky. Honestly, I've, I've worked on so many shows. This is by far the best, um, you know, the best show, the best work product the best team, the best organization, the best support, the best infrastructure, the best all of it that I've ever worked on. It's really awesome.
1: Well, you know, I think, let's see, you and I met, I think, oh my gosh, so long ago, 2008, I want to say. And, you know, back then you had written a book and you were not quite so visible in the media at that point in your life and career, did you is this kind of a goal maybe that you had in your mind's eye <laughs> or is this something that happened unexpectedly? It happened to me. Um I did not
0: <laughs> No, I I'm a writer and I, you know, I left college as a writer and I took writing jobs for ever. And I worked at the New York Times for 8 years. I I I wrote freelance, I wrote for travel guides, I wrote for a municipal bond newspaper. I <laughs> still could not tell you what a municipal bond is um, <laughs> you know I wrote where where I could, and when I wrote that first book, um why you're wrong about the right, that sort of opened up in 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 you know my publisher wanting me to publicize it and promote promote it that opened up me me up to t v and you know how it goes once you're on you know if if it's working, you'll just get called to be on. Again, and mm-hmm. and by and by other networks, and then you're sort of in this system, and yeah. you know some people choose to leave the system. Some people don't, st- you know, can't survive in the system. <laughs> you know, some some people are asked to leave the system. Um, some people wear out their welcome, but some people really thrive in the system. And even though it wasn't what I was seeking. I, I really thrived in the system and it was great for me because I got to publicize my writing, um, around that time I got a a weekly column in the New York daily news, uh, which is now nationally, nationally syndicated. I got to go on there and promote, you know, my byline SC cup, New York daily news columnist, um, and, and other writing projects that I had. So it worked for me. It wasn't a goal. It wasn't something I, I ever chased. I always said if TV goes away tomorrow, I'll be, I'll be fine. But I did thrive in it. I found it easy. I mean, I, I hate, I hate to say that cause it sounds really smug, but like I, it, I wasn't terrified by it. I didn't get nervous. Um, it felt natural is a better word. Um, and I think if TV doesn't feel natural, you shouldn't do it because everyone's going to be able to see that it's just not <laughs> natural. And And it's uncomfortable for, for viewers when someone is uncomfortable on television. So, you know, it all just kind of clicked and worked and that's not to say any of this came easily. It, it it didn't, I still had to work and hustle to stick around and, you know, to find, you know, different, different paths and a a show I was on would get canceled and what's my next move or, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a, a job offer somewhere else and can I do it all, you know? I still had to navigate a very complicated, um, you know, set, set of, of, of paths. But uh, no, I'm, I, I can't believe every day I can't believe I'm I have a show on CNN. I mean, it's just out, it's outrageous. <laughs> and and the best part is I'm still you know, I still get to write. I write my whole show start to finish. I, you know, still write my my, da- my my daily news column. I write for CNN.com. I write for long-form pieces for Glamour. I, you know, I still get to do what I love. And this is all just a huge bonus, um, you know, getting to work on TV and having such a, a, a an incredible platform to talk about things that I care about and working with such great people. It's all, that's all just icing for me. Um, because I I never I never dreamed any of this up.
1: Uh were you um did you do much public speaking or were you like on the debate team or anything in high school and <laughs> things like that? No, <laughs> no. It's just like you just have you were really just born this way. <laughs> I mean,
0: I don't I don't know. I don't know. I was very I was very like argumentative as a as a, um, <laughs> as a kid, like in a good way, like I was I could right. very clearly articulate a point and I was just always good with words. Um, you know, I was great at writing from a real early age. Again, like that kind of came natural to me. My mom's an English teacher and so it's almost in the blood. Um, I didn't have to work too hard at it. And in fact, in high school, when we're all talking about what we want to do, I thought, well, I can't be a writer for a living, you know, what your career supposed to be hard and writing is easy. <laughs> and so I really sort of pushed it away, <clears throat> not thinking of it as a job until I got to college and I worked at my college newspaper. And it was, a, I was, I, I was high. It was a drug. I was like, oh, this is it. This is mm. what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. I'll work in a small paper. I'll work in a big paper. It doesn't matter. This is what I'm doing but it again it, it didn't really occur to me that that's where I would go um you know when I was younger
1: well you mentioned your colleagues David Axelrod and Van Jones they both have shows on Saturday night and i think it's interesting that the three of you are on on Saturday cuz i think all three of you have like this great reputation of at least what seems that you're respected by kind of both sides of the aisle, at least like sane people on both sides of the aisle. <laughs> um, you know, you're obviously more right of center than those two, but I I, I respect the two of them and you for, um, you know, being sensible on the issues, engaging in conversation with people that don't agree with you, um, being fair in your arguments and like only bringing up the best of what the other side is um, is explaining basically. So I'm wondering if you, um, if that's intentional on your part. Do you have any kind of strategic way that you're looking at things to make sure you are coming across that way to people? And do you consider yourself a moderate? Mm. Um, all great questions. Uh, let me just
0: say I adore Van and, and Axe. They're two of my closest friends. And I also have that respect for them that they can concede points that they can be generous at the table. You know, part of this job in in working with people that, you know, you're, you're paid to disagree with is to be able to concede a point and be generous to someone else's position. Um, and they're really good at that. And so it's a very safe space when I'm on with them Mm -hmm. and we, I mean, we fight to be on together because we, the three of us, we just, we, <laughs> we do, we, we love doing TV together. It doesn't feel like work. It feels, it's just, it just feels like hanging out with friends. And so they're both just great people. And I, I, I adore them as well. I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad you, um, you are also a fan. Yeah. Um, You know, I think I've evolved a bit in my project as a political commentator. You know, when I first started out, when we met, I was on there to be a conservative champion, you know, to fight for conservative conservative causes, conservatives in, in the media. And so I was a lot more strident. And that's over time naturally sort of shifted to wanting to be more of a consensus builder. And... I don't say that from a place of, like, self-righteousness, you know, that that's, like, a a better, more moral thing to do. But for me, it just became less interesting to just mm-hmm. be a conservative who defended conservatism, who rejected everything from the other side, you know, who lived to point out the flaws in your argument or, you know, that just became less interesting. and especially now when the political landscape has shifted so much and, you know, once conservative people are now called cucks, you know, I think it's more important now than ever to try to build some consensus where you can find it. And when I got my own show, that became really important to me. So I don't, I don't have people on the show to embarrass them. I don't have them on to call them out I, I will disagree with people sometimes, but I, I have you on because I want people to hear your point of view. Mm. And it's not because I always agree with it, but you know, I just think it's an important thing for people to hear. And so I love to find common ground. I love to find solutions to problems, big and small. And it's why Van and I love working together too, because he's the same exact way. He'd much rather have a conversation with a Republican Who's interested in coming to some kind of solution, then he would be talking to a strident progressive where they just, you know, me too each other. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So
1: boring when right. that happens, and those he, panels. Yeah, he's
0: not interested in that. And they're not interesting. Um, and and I'm I'm not either. I, I don't want to gather a, a collection of of people who sound and talk like me in a, a room and and you know, yell at the camera for an hour. I just, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. There's a lot, there's plenty of that elsewhere. And if people want that, they know how to find it. But I I want to be sort of a, a a place you can breathe and actually hear people and have a conversation and maybe learn something and sure, maybe disagree and all, all of that, but like in a very comfortable setting.
1: When, what do you, I mean, you work for CNN and you have for some time. Um, so what do you make of it when you hear the, fake news thrown at you?
0: You know, it's, it was funny at first and that, and we sort of, you know, just like brushed it off, but it's really, um, it's really disappointing. It's really dangerous. It's a lot more dangerous, Mm -hmm. I think, than people realize. Undermining the integrity of a free press is a really, really dangerous thing to do. And we are not perfect. We don't always get it right. We should be better at our jobs. Um, but the free press is, so imp- is such an important, crucial part of our democracy. And people who would undermine that just for the sake of their own egos, just to be disruptive, just to be punitive, first of all, is very small and, and petty. But, but also, it's just really dangerous. I mean, that's what happens first when a, a country starts chipping away at its democracy, you know, democratic values. They start with the press. Mm
1: -hmm. And so
0: it's really, um, it's really odious and it's something we have to fight. We fight every day. And, and when we make mistakes, it's a big setback for us. You know, that, that does not help. And we can't be perfect. We will never be perfect, but mistakes are, are particularly, um, deleterious for us right now. We've got to be, you know, the best we've ever been.
1: So speaking of um, fake news and the person who started that uh, phrase, uh, President Trump, you said that you were going to write in someone for 2016, and you've obviously been one of the more outspoken voices that was not super supportive of his, um, you know, him being the nominee and ultimately president. And I also wrote in someone, so I'm with you there. Um, I think there's a good handful of us uh, conservatives that were in that same camp, but um I'm curious what your thoughts are on like 2016 was just just a different ball game than any other year and yeah. what do you think that this has done to I guess more the Republican party than anything because it really split us down the middle and um you know I don't know I'm just curious what your thoughts are on on what that did to the party Yeah I'm still trying
0: to wrap my head around it and it's still evolving right I mean it it didn't end you know, with the election, it's still happening, you know, Justin Amash resigning from the Freedom Caucus is just like the latest example of this schism and being sort of in the upside down in bizarro world where like a guy (laughs) with a guy with one of the most conservative records in Congress is like no longer a conservative because of his disloyalty to the president. Mm -hmm. And I, I wrote this long form piece for Vanity Fair called The Conservative Coma, where I, I try to examine what has happened to the Republican Party and what will happen, like where it will go. And I think, you know, I've decided, I guess for now, conservatism as a value set doesn't die. It doesn't go anywhere. It's still, it still lives. It's in a bit of a coma. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can argue Republicans are certainly very visible, but are conservatives, are conservative ideas very visible right now, it doesn't feel that way when we have a president who champions protectionism, you know, t- tariffs, that's, that's not what we do. Um, you know, that's but one example. I mean, ripping, ripping kids out of, out of their parents' arms at the border. That's not who we are. Um, so, you know, this, this president is, is adding trillions to the debt and the deficit. That's not who we are either. Um, so that's, Uh, disappointing, obviously, but the question is what happens next? Who revives conservatism out of this coma? Does it, does it take a Democrat in the White House to sort of jolt Republicans back to, you know, orient themselves around a common cause again and find, Mm -hmm. you know, rediscover their conservatism? I don't know. Does it take uh, another kind of Trump-like figure. I I don't mean who he is, but like this sort of cult-like, you know, personality in the other direction in the more conservative direction to say, no, 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 you've been worshiping a false idol. Worship me instead. I don't know. Uh, I don't know where this goes. Uh, And it's, it's disconcerting because I care about conservatism and I once cared about this party but it's it's really hard to care about the party now. I, I don't think the there's much left of the party that I knew.
1: Yeah, it's definitely had a massive transition since, uh, since I yeah. entered the scene as well. Well, yeah. so obviously we're looking at the election next year and Democrats are, you know, there's like 27 of them. Um, it seems like they are really fighting this battle for who can be most progressive right now. Um, Yeah. Which doesn't seem like a winning strategy for the country. Nope. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) I mean, do you I mean, I know this is such a cliche, basic question, but like, what are you thinking? Do you think that somebody can pull it off?
0: (laughs) Um, Not so far, (laughs) honestly. No. And I don't you know, I can't vote for a Democrat, really. I mean, he or she would have to be would have to be like, not very democratic, Right. Like, same right, on a same couple here.
1: Issues.
0: <laughs> right. But like, but I, I also don't think four more years of Trump is healthy for us. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't. So I, I would like to see someone, um, you know, oust him, but I don't see anyone. I mean, I, I have this conversation on my show all the time about moderates. I, I, I don't see any moderates, even people who say, they're moderate or they're running in a moderate lane i can't find their moderate policies i mean i think moderate now has just come to describe someone who can speak to blue collar voters without telling them they're stupid yeah who who can have a respect sort of a respect it's it's almost about tone you know joe biden's a moderate why i don't know because he came from scranton and can talk to you know, forgotten Democrats in the Rust Belt in a way that isn't condescending? Okay. I don't see any of his policies policies as moderate. Right. I mean, you know, he just flipped on the Hyde Amendment. That's something that's still very popular among a majority of Americans. He caved in in a nanosecond on that one.
1: Yeah. People are just so afraid of like the lobbies and like you know, making sure that they're yeah. staying, you know, A++ plus with Planned Parenthood and all of that. <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, all of them are that way right now with Planned Parenthood, but, um, yeah. it's, it's almost like counterintuitive because you're like, you're just speaking to the loudest voice, but that's not the most voices in the room, you know, in the country. That's not the majority. Um, so it'll be interesting. No, it's
0: not. I mean, most, most people, whether it's on the issue of abortion or immigration, most people are really in the middle. Yeah. It's slight majorities that want abortions with no restrictions. It's a slight minority, teeny tiny minority that wants to make all abortion illegal. Most people are more in the middle. And yet you would not know that if you listened to a lot of these candidates on the debate stage last night, and I'm sure it'll be more of the same tonight. Um, you know, you would think the country was socialist, and that that work gets thrown around a lot. But but I'm I'm being very you know I- intentional with it. You know, talking about a, a abolishing ICE and a Green New Deal and free college tuition and free healthcare loan at you know clearing your student loan. I mean, it's just this is this is not a <laughs> this is. Not the country we currently live in, and I don't think a majority of people want to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. but the the candidates have chosen to only run a primary strategy with sort of no escape hatch for the general. I guess they just think they'll, I don't know, either pivot back or not or not and just sort of run to the left through through a general election, which is the best way to keep Trump around. Um, it just, I don't, I don't see, I don't see anyone really occupying that central center moderate center left lane yet that could really give Trump a run for their money. It was supposed to be
1: Biden, but I have not seen that in evidence. Yeah. Well, I wasn't going to ask you about this, but I'll just, I'll just ask you anyway. Um, so Mm -hmm. what's going on on the border right now? Obviously we're seeing these horrific reports from the New York times, Washington post, all the places about what's happening with children and families. Um, I still feel like some of it is not being accurately reported though. Like I I feel like there's a lot of confusion on what's happening and why it's happening and where's the money and where it started. And and one thing I was like really confused on yesterday was like, why are they not accepting personal donations? I mean, if there's 3000, I'm just making this number up, but if there's Mm 3000 kids without toothbrushes, I mean, someone can buy them all a toothbrush, one person. So what's going on? So I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on, What's actually happening? What are we hearing through the filter? You know, all of that. Yeah. It's so, it's such a
0: complicated issue. And it's, it's always a complicated issue. Now it's particularly complicated because there's a lot of emotion involved. It's being politicized by both sides of the aisle because it's an election year. We've got Trump as a, as a character in this uh, a saga. And, and, you know, he's got his own personal motives for doing what he does. On this issue and saying what he says on this issue, so it's really tricky to unpack. But there is one thousand percent there's a crisis on our mm-hmm. border, and it doesn't start on our border. Um, it 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 happens on our border, but it start it's it starts in this northern triangle um, in in South America and Central America, and it's something that the United States has a vested interest in in stopping in solving. And so I don't I don't think Trump pulling pulling all of our financial aid out helps anybody. But the problem starts there, at least when we're talking about these asylum seekers that are that are, you know, pouring over the borders and, and dying tragically in many cases and then being being essentially jailed um, in horrific conditions. The problem starts before they get to our border. And it's something we should address. Now, when they get to our border, we also have to make that process better. I mean, I think most people in America want to make illegal immigration harder and legal immigration easier.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, we have neither, we have neither. We have, you know, we have, we have neither. We have sanctuary cities that reward illegal immigration. We've got people like, you know, candidates like John Hickenlooper and Bernie Sanders who want to give uh, illegal immigrants free healthcare and, and tuition. And I don't know how that would incentivize anyone to come over legally. But we've also got a compassion problem here. I mean I you know I do a lot of work for refugees and asylum seekers and nobody wants to be a refugee, nobody wants to flee their home with nothing mm-hmm. but the most important things, their children, their families, you know and 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 take these really dangerous journeys, be displaced, be jailed, be be separated from nobody wants that. And so we've got to figure this out. but the dirty secret, About immigration is that it is not politically profitable for either side to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it over years, years. Um, You know, when one party has had control of Congress and not done anything to solve immigration, that's how you know. Yeah. Because Republicans wanna run on it and fundraise on it. And so do Democrats. And if it's solved, well, they lose a whole lot of special interest groups and a whole lot of anger and fear and emotion and passion. And so, I mean, I hate to be crass, but I have, I have watched this happen. When you look at polling on immigration, what do most illegal immigrants prioritize? They want legal status. They want to come out of the shadows. They don't prioritize a path to citizenship. Why? Because many one day want to return home. They're here to work. They're here to make money. They're here to raise their family. And maybe one day they want to go home. So what's the thing that we always fight about? A pathway to citizenship. We create this barrier that isn't even the most important priority to illegal immigrants. Mm -hmm. But we use it as an excuse to not solve the problem. And it's deeply disappointing. And I, I was at least hopeful. I didn't like Trump's message at all. But I was at least hopeful that he would come in and try to sort some of this out and force Democrats and Republicans to the table. And he has, you know, at times to just address easy stuff like E-Verify. What do we do with DACA kids? What do we, you know, the easier stuff Mm -hmm. and still nothing. Mm. It's so political and poisoned. Yeah. That I I don't know how this ever gets solved because I don't think anyone ever is
1: really interested in solving it. Yeah, this week has been horrible with that photo. I'm sure you know the photo that CNN put out. Um, I just was like, I got to get away from this right now because I'm being overwhelmed with emotion about it. Um, It's hard. So uh, on President Trump, though, have you been surprised by anything with him since the election? Did he, um, you know, exceed or under exceed your expectations? Huh. Um,
0: I didn't, I didn't think, I I didn't love that he seemed to think during the election that he needed white nationalists (laughs) to win. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't like that. But I thought, well, once he's in, he'll abandon those idiots, those losers. And he didn't. Mm-mm. And that is, that's shocking to me because I, 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 I just don't see him as a sort of principled person, you know, <laughs> or, or a philosophical one or one with any real ideas other than, you know, get, get me ahead. So I just thought, well, he, you know, he'll abandon them you know, for political expediency, he's using them for political expediency. Then he'll abandon them because it's gross and he hasn't. And so that showed me a little bit about his, his, his character. And again, I don't know what he believes because I don't know that he believes in anything, but he certainly seems to think they are his people. Mm -hmm. And maybe, uh, maybe that's also just for political expediency. And he likes surrounding himself with people who love him. Um, And then I guess on a positive note, I was I was surprised uh, that he on Syria. I was surprised pleasantly that he followed through on airstrikes after chemical weapons were used by Assad. That's obviously something Obama was unwilling to do and, you know, pretended to solve by by having Russia take, you know, pretend to take the chemical weapons away. Trump came in. When he saw chemical weapons being used on innocent children, um, mm-hmm. he issued airstrikes. Mm-hmm. I thought that was important. It wasn't nearly enough, and this administration is not doing enough on Syria, in my opinion. But I thought that was good. That was a good um,
1: instinct that that he had at the time. Well, to transition just a little bit, uh, do you have a dream guest that you'd like to have on to interview that you haven't interviewed in the past?
0: Oh, boy.
1: Uh Many. I mean, I
0: I I think um, I would have loved, and it's a, it's almost harder because um, I knew him. But I would have loved to have interviewed John McCain.
1: Mm. Um, mm-hmm.
0: You know, ap- after the election, and you think, well, you know, aren't you guys friends? You know, Megan's Megan's my best friend, and I I I guess that almost made it harder because. I don't like to mix friendships and business, you know, I didn't want to say, hey, can your dad come right, on my show? Right, right, exactly. That's not, that's not, you know, that's not what what I do. But um, that would have been, I think, a really cool, uh, but important conversation. His voice is missing now. And and along those lines, I'd love to have W on. I think mm-hmm. he should be doing more media. Um, You know, I think he can be a consensus builder. I think he can sort of be a of uh, a McCain kind of voice
1: yeah. for
0: the party, and I think you know I get why he doesn't want to, but I think that would be a really, I mean, if I'm if we're talking dream guest, right? Big,
1: yeah, <laughs> no, totally. He's w uh, W's been on my list forever, <laughs> so
0: you know someone like W in a current lens, I think looks a lot different than maybe people remember him mm-hmm. being. Yeah, in. 2004 2008 you know and i think it would be it would be a good lens for him and all of us to sort of revisit him in real time not with like a historical look back but like an in real time revisiting with w to 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 see him through current eyes i just think would be cool
1: yeah i mean you you've heard this in the past couple years um (laughs) you've even seen op-eds from like really hardcore leftists like oh I miss George W or like, you know, (laughs) like all these like kind things are coming back out. And, you know, and the same thing with like, you know, when Mitt Romney was running for president and people are trying to call him a racist and stuff. It's like he was a monster. (laughs) I mean, it's like Mitt Romney is and George W. Like they are both like I've heard nothing but good things about, you know, their friendliness and demeanor and just the kind of people that they are. So it is interesting to to look back and see what you thought was so bad (laughs) so long ago.
0: Well, I think that's, I I actually think that's a really important point because, and I think in some way it it led to Trump because, you know, when voters are told that Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney is a monster, (laughs) is like a sexist animal killing billionaire monster. Then I think they think, do you think we're stupid? That's crazy, and we're not going to believe anything you say now. Yeah. So then the next cycle, when they say, no, Hillary's great, Hillary's the candidate for you, Hillary's got your interests at heart, Hillary's a really good candidate, they're like, are you nuts? <laughs> you just told us Mitt Romney was a monster, now you're telling, telling us Hillary Clinton's a good candidate, one of the least liked politicians on the planet, and I think Trump exploited this disruption this dishonesty this hypocrisy mm-hmm. and he said look they're going to call me this anyway i'm i'm just going to be it you know yeah and so i think i think in a way and i'm not, i'm not saying democrats are responsible for trump but in a way this desire this urgency to paint really good people as political villains just because you don't agree with them is really like dangerous. Mm-hmm. I, I think it has ramifications beyond just that ele- election cycle. And I think we're seeing some of that now.
1: Have you ever had an experience where you, cause you know, you're, you're sparring with people, you're disagreeing with people arguing on, on your show sometimes and, and other places. Have you ever had an experience where it led to like later on, like personal animosity or like a real rift in a personal relationship? Or are you really, you know, it always is in the end, you're going to be friends. Like with people I work with? Um, well that, or just others that you've had on that, you know? Oh, um, cause you seem pretty good at, you know, like, Hey, we disagree, but we're still going to be friends at the end of the day.
0: Well, that's always my hope. And you know, I usually have mature grown ups. <laughs> yeah. but you know, you, you never, you never know how someone's going to take something. I, I did an interview with a politician once, um, who had some scandals in his past. And I wanted to take him out and do an interview that talked about that. And I was real clear with him that I wanted to talk about that. And he said, fine. And then afterwards he was upset that what, you know, he thought the interview was going to just touch on it. And it sort of became the whole interview and he was really upset, and I, you know, I, I, I said, "Look, like I told you, we were going to talk about this. It's why I wanted to have you on. You can't be responsible. I, I can only do my job ethically and be as honest and upfront, you know, as I can. But people are always going to, you know, complain that they didn't get a fair shake or they didn't, you know, hey, become a producer if you want to produce television. Become a producer. You can't produce your own, you know, interviews always. But no, I don't. I've never had anyone like." You know, storm out. I'm never coming on this show again. Or...
1: No, not not yet. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Time time will tell, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, one other one thing I wanted to ask you about regarding a colleague, uh, you uh, it, we just passed the one year mark of the death of Anthony Bourdain, and I was curious how well did you know him and what could you tell him uh, us about him as a person? Yeah, I I, I didn't know him well. Um, you know, being at CNN, we'd see each
0: other fairly regularly, but he was also off filming a lot (laughs) uh, in the field, you know, so, so he wasn't around too much, but he's just a person that everyone respected and wanted to know better. You know, everyone was curious and excited when he was around and everyone wanted to be in his universe. They wanted to know what he knew. They wanted to hear his opinion on, on everything. I mean, how bizarre is it? And amazing. That like we cared what he thought about political yeah. conflicts overseas because cause he went there. And he went there through, you know, the lens of food and food culture, but we still all knew him to be smart and respectful and um you know thoughtful enough that we wanted his his opinion on on a, those issues. And that's an incredible thing that he cultivated. Mm-hmm. And so um you know, he was just a person that people loved to be around and wanted to be around more. Everyone wanted to know him. And and he was a bit elusive, you know, um, both because of his shooting schedule and also he was he's a loner. And he was clear about that. Um, but his, his is a great, it's a great, great loss. It's a great loss to not just our network, but, you know to the country. Yeah. He was a really important voice, I think, for a lot of, for a lot of people who who wanted to get into food and travel, but also just as a, as a personality, you know, he had a really unique way of looking at life. Yeah. And I think that spoke to a lot of people.
1: Yeah. There was just so many, I mean, it was so obviously incredibly sad, but I think a lot of good conversations came out of it and, uh, I hope so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I have a few questions uh, that I like to do more fun type of questions at the end of the podcast. So Kay. we'll do the rundown on these. Uh, can you name, it? what is something you're most proud of?
0: My son. I know it's so cliche. So true but though. I'm, I am, I am. He is, and I don't, I take no credit for how awesome he is, but like he's my greatest work product. You mm-hmm. know, he's the best thing I've ever made. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just so, so in awe of him and he is four. I mean, he's not doing anything all that <laughs> impressive yet, but like, I'm still just, I'm in awe of his personality and the way he looks at life. And I just, I just think he is the coolest person I know. And so I'm proud that I'm proud. I decided to become a mother. Cause that wasn't always what I thought I was going to do. I'm proud. I made that decision. I'm proud that I make him a priority in my life. I'm proud that. I have a, a job and an employer who gets that and, and respects that and appreciates that. So that's, I mean, all the pride it comes from that department. How
1: did <laughs> you change when you became a mom? Was there anything where you just shifted? I mean, everything changed. And
0: I just, I mean, I never felt the weight of responsibility like I did when I became a mom. Um and i never felt the joy just pure unadulterated joy as i did when i became a mom nothing made me as happy before having a kid as my kid does you know nothing nothing even came close yeah and so it's just it's changed my outlook on 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 work balance you know yeah. and and what matters in my life of course um it's i uh, you know it 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 made me look at my husband differently, you know as you do mm-hmm. because he's half responsible for this little guy too, and he's such a great dad, and I'm just so lucky that my kid has such a great dad. I was thinking about this, my parents divorced when I was three, mm-hmm. and my mom remarried um when I was six, and I have a great dad um he's a stepdad, but I just he's always been my dad I have a great dad. But my, my mom and my biological divorce when I was three and when Jack turned three, I got real emotional, like that Jack was going to have two parents mm-hmm. around for longer than I did was just so overwhelming in a good way, yeah. um, to me, but you know, that's a way of saying I'm just, I'm just so lucky that my kid has such a great dad. Um, cause I. I wasn't born into one, you know, Right, we had to
1: go find one and yeah.
0: <laughs> I got lucky there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause I'm not, I, I always say, I don't consider myself a kid person. Like I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> right. I'm not really into other people's kids, <laughs> but, but I was just looking at my son yesterday, you know, and he's three and a half. So they're close in age, but I was like, he just, it's, sometimes I just like to just look at him and just smile. And I'm just like, everything he does is just like so fascinating to me. Um, But no other three-year-old would that be true of. I know.
0: It's so so true. I wasn't a kid person either. I don't think I am now. But, like, my kid's my best friend. There's no one I'd rather be with. And that's probably bad for him. But, you know, that's probably not ideal for him. (laughs) Well, boundaries. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll have to learn those um, (laughs) as he gets older. But for now,
1: you know, he's just... We're just in love. And it's it's really cool. Well, so this might this is kind of like one of the other questions, but if you could have dinner or drinks with anyone, who would it be and why? Okay. So he already knows this. It's Andy Cohen. Okay. <laughs>
0: and uh, Bravo. Yes. And I'm lucky in that I, I know him and I get to do his show. And, um, you know, we, we have a, a professional relationship, mm-hmm. but I want to, and I've told him, like if I could interview one person, not political, it would be him. And if I, if I could, if I could have like a, a full meal, and just ask him anything. I'm just so fascinated by how much he has changed television. And I, I watch a lot of Bravo. It's such an escape for me. Um, but I wanna I want gossip, I wanna know about The Housewives, I wanna know about the process, the casting. I just, I'm fascinated by it. And he's just got such a, an eye and an ear for, for this, and, and making these shows that people love. I, I think he's really a talented guy, mm-hmm. and he's really made a huge, I mean, mogul out of himself, you know, a guy who was, like, an assistant producer. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. That's incredible. And I'm just, I'm i am really sort of in awe of that. Um, and I just want to gossip, too. He, see- <laughs> he
1: seems super fun. And didn't he just have a baby?
0: He did or just a baby, have a baby, obviously.
1: Little. No, he had one. He had one.
0: With a sorghum oh, okay, um, okay. Ben, Benny, and yeah, he's uh, he's over the moon, of course, yeah. and little little change to his lifestyle, I'm sure, yeah. but he's he's um he's you know in in love. He's in love yeah. as well.
1: Do you have any favorite recent books that you've read?
0: Oh, um, I just read. This is so dumb, but I I just read um. A book by Kranz um about Apollo, the program. Yes, you're like science. Nerd. I mean, this is what. Yeah, I mean, this is what I like to read, like in my in my in my free time. Um, that was great, but also I don't know if um, people read Bad Blood. Mm-hmm. It's a really good book about um, Theranos. Mm, I s- listened to the podcast about it. It's really good. But so I read that. And then right after I wanted something similar. And so I read Black Edge. Mm -hmm. It's about it's sort of a similar journalistic takedown of um, a Wall Street guy, like a hedge fund guy. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating. And I don't understand finance, but I could like (sighs) they, they broke all of this down in a way that that I could understand. And It was a really good read, so I'd I'd recommend it. And then next up, I have Billion Dollar Whale, which is sort of a similar thing. It's it's the man who fooled Wall Street Hollywood and the world. And I haven't gotten into that one yet, but like I love those kinds of books where I can learn a little something about an industry while also just reading about terrible people who do terrible
1: things. When do you do most of your reading? Like at night, in the morning? No, Planes and Trains. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's like my only time... I can
0: do it, um so it's almost exclusively when I'm traveling and traveling alone,
1: yeah, can't do that when you're traveling with a four year old that's for sure <laughs> no, no, no <laughs> uh, do you i I mean in all of the rest of your spare time, do you listen to podcasts at all? Um, I do occasionally
0: uh, not a ton, um, but you know because I have a podcast, I wanna I, I like to hear what other people are doing mm-hmm. any um, so so I'm sorry Do you have any favorites. Um, my friend Aaron has one on pod, pod save. Um, that's, that's good. Um, Erin, Gloria Ryan, she, she's got a, a good one. It's funny. Uh, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not on podcasts all that often.
1: Yeah. Well, it's like, you gotta, you can't have something in your head like all the time, nonstop.
0: <laughs> it's, it's true. I mean, between what, you know, we do for a living and you know, I have to watch news when I'm not on the news, of course.
1: You know, sometimes I just, like, silence. <laughs> do you have, <laughs> you know? like, a daily, like, routine for how you catch up on everything? Because there's just always so much to know and all all these many details. Um, how do you, like, keep yourself up on everything? I mean,
0: I have news on all, all day when I'm home. Um, and, you know, whether I'm doing something else or not, it's just on. So it's sort of, you know, infiltrating <laughs> bra- bra- uh, into your brain. brain. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, I, of course, start every morning, you know, online, reading, Twitter, media, CNN, Politico, WAPO. You know, I have this like ritual where I just go through and read um, a bunch of stuff on politics in the media. And, you know, it it's it almost happens by osmosis, by virtue of what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to do hits, you know, for other shows when I'm not on. And so... I prep for those. And it just, when you're in the system, it kind of happens on its own. You don't have to mm-hmm. work that hard. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Because it's what you do. It's what you hear all day. It's who the people you, you talk to, you know?
1: Is there someone that you, is like a role model for you in, in the career space? Someone that you look to as someone that you really respect, maybe a mentor. I really respect. And she's not a mentor,
0: but I really love Christiana Amanpour mm-hmm. and and this old war reporter. Yeah, I, I'm not calling her old. But like <laughs> the old idea, the traditional,
1: you know,
0: the old, yeah, the, old, the yeah traditional idea of a war reporter, you know, who goes to conflict zones. I just think she's such a pioneer. Yeah, and we have too little of that now. And I I love what she's doing now. Um, and we're so lucky to have her. I don't know. I mean, I've had a number of them at the various networks I worked at when I was at Fox. Sean Hannity was really kind and helpful to me, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I he's a great guy. I don't I don't always love what he says on on TV anymore, but he's a really good person, mm-hmm. and he was very helpful in my in my early career. Um, when I got to MSNBC, there's a, an executive there who now actually works at at, at CNN with us. He's sort of old, um, again traditional. Um, <laughs> traditional uh, pr- pr- producer, a uh, talk show producer. Um, and he's always been really helpful to me. Um, I have got a, a, a current producer who I've known a really long time and she's been, um, a big influence in my life and a, a good, a good friend and sounding board. And I've, I've been lucky. I've met a lot of really, really great, people in this business. And I've got, you know, really good friends from across political spectrums and across outlets and and networks uh, that, you know, I I trust and, you know, that are not competitive with with me and I'm not competitive with them. And that's really awesome. You need those in this business because it is competitive. And there are people who are, you know, angling for your job or trying to take you down. And so when you find people that you can really trust, in in this business, it's real. Um, you're real lucky.
1: All right. Well, thank you for spending this whole hour with me to chat about all these things. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome. You're great at this, Erica. You're a really, really good interviewer, and I hope I I hope it was a good conversation. I had fun. Thank you. Well, I know you loved that conversation with Essie Cuff. She is truly one of the good ones. I have enjoyed. Uh, being friends with her for the past decade. And she's always been such a great support to me in everything that I've done. And I just feel really lucky to know her and um, just really respect her thoughts and opinions on things and think she is truly one of the smartest people uh, commentating on the issues these days. So um, love that episode. Oh, I'm glad you're here. And I look forward to connecting with you again next Tuesday. Have a great one, everyone.